We're back. With us now is Dr. Corey Peltier, who will share insights on STEM learning from a perspective that is more focused on math instruction for students with EBD. Dr. Peltier is an assistant professor in the Department of Ed Psych at the Janine Rainbow College of Education at the University of Oklahoma. He teaches courses in undergraduate and graduate special education program related to intensive intervention, assessment, and single case research design. He's on the editorial board of several journals, including Remedial and Special Education, Assessment for Effective Intervention, and School Psychology Review. His research focuses on mathematics interventions for students with disabilities and building teacher content knowledge. Dr. Peltier is also investigates the use of single case research designs and systematic review and meta-analysis to inform practice and research. So welcome, Dr. Peltier. Thanks for having me, y'all. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for coming. So Corey, our K through 12 students are increasingly being asked to solve complex problems, represent and defend their ideas, and apply their learning to new contexts. But there are concerns about the effects curricular changes involving the widely adopted Common Core State Standards will have on students with math difficulties, particular, particularly because of the emphasis on abstract reasoning and problem solving. Students with or at risk for EBD have academic deficits that affect their performance in math, often in these areas. So what can you tell us about the larger trends in math performance for students with disabilities and with emotional behavior disorders in particular? Are we seeing more students struggling to meet standards in math today? Yeah, so this is a really dense topic. Um, one area that we can look at is if we look at NAEP results, um, over, the last, over the last decade, the math improvement rate has basically been stagnant. Students, the same number of proficiency we're seeing for the general population and even within students with disabilities. So I think this is where a lot of the concern is coming of what do we need to do to actually see an improvement on our investment. And one of the big issues with the Common Core State Standards is there's this um, notion that we're constantly trying to pit, pit conceptual understanding and procedural understanding against each other. And it's this false dichotomy, there's no need to do that. We see a lot of research that these two things actually work together. So um, sometimes you'll see teachers will spend a whole lot of time building conceptual understanding and, and not even touch procedural understanding. When if we think about actually trying to build both these things together, they're actually gonna work in tandem to improve outcomes. Um, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in, in the episode when we start talking about the instructional hierarchy. But that if we think it through a lens of Herring's instructional hierarchy, it makes a heck of a lot of sense. You get that acquisition built and then you build into fluency and then generalization. I like how you said it was a false dichotomy, right? Like these things can work together. But if we're not doing those two things together, how can that maybe lead like lean into some of these discrepancies that we're seeing for students with disabilities and emotional behavior disorders and their you know gains in mathematics yeah so one one issue that we see come into play is if we're only building conceptual understanding and then we drop off and don't provide any procedural students don't become fluent and we um basically fluency is comprised of speed and accuracy right and what happens is when students are fluent they're gonna be able to do all of those cool 
generalization, flexibility, that kind of overall number sense thing that we're shooting for. So if we stop at conceptual and never get students to fluency, what happens is we see large, uh, um, there's no maintenance, right? So as soon as you jump to the next skill, students forget what they just learned. So this is why you might be a middle school teacher like, didn't you learn this in fifth grade? Well, what happened is the <laughs> students never built to fluency and generalization. So now you're having to try to backfill all of those math concepts that build on one another. So the big thing, and this is where if you're a special education teacher trying to work with your general education teacher, it's essential that y'all are working together as a team, right? So whatever they're doing, if they're building a lot of conceptual understanding in the gen ed environment, you can be that source of, okay, how can I relate this conceptual learning to procedures, right? So making that the concrete, maybe the concrete um, aspect to the algorithm or the abstract and making those explicit connections for students is gonna be essential. However, if we only do procedures, right? If all I'm doing, there's a bunch of short, nice tricks we can teach students. The problem is a lot of those tricks end, right? They're finite, they, they end up stopping. Students don't know how far they can generalize those things. So they'll start doing them all the time when they're not, a, they're not appropriate, right? So it is this tough balance where we need to consider both of these things in tandem. Excellent, that's, that's good info. And, and um, I think for our students uh, with EBD in particular, uh, sometimes they might lack some of those academic skills and it could be procedural knowledge, it could be conceptual knowledge, it could be the lack of integrating the two, um, but they don't get to that, that final phase of the, the, the stages of learning, right? And they don't, they don't do the, the things needed or required to, uh, to maintain or to generalize that knowledge. And so they start to get frustrated um, and exhibit challenging behavior. Um, <clears throat> some people have referred to that as the failure cycle. And students may act out in their math class if they're faced with difficult work, things where they have not uh, established that foundation of conceptual and procedural knowledge. Um, does it work the other way too, Corey, where uh, their behavior starts to affect their performance in math? Yeah, 100%. So um, Dr. Amanda Vander Hayden, I can, I'll send some resources your way. She is killing it right now talking through like the instructional hierarchy, dealing with behavior, how to plan intervention. And uh, back in her doctoral program days, one of the things she worked a lot on is the can't do, won't do assessment. And what we're really trying to figure out is, is there a knowledge deficit so the student can, they don't have the math skills needed to do the task, or is it a won't do, which is dealing with more so non-compliance. That is gonna be essential for us to figure out because you're gonna respond vastly different. Um, depending on what the reason is. And another thing to look at, um, Dr. Sarah Powell, who's at UT Austin, just did a really cool study where they were looking at behavioral inhibition and off-task behavior. And so basically what they found, which is not surprising to any of us, students who have higher levels of off-task behavior responded way less to high-quality intervention than students who were on task. So something I try to work with our undergrads and thinking, you can be laying down some amazing math content, right? <laughs> you could be just slinging it, but right. all of that good instruction is not happening in this like bubble, right? Your right. use of behavior specific praise, to providing tokens, reinforcement, providing good error correction procedures, all of that opportunities to respond. All of those things, you you can't lose those, right? Those are right. tools in the toolbox. Good so, instruction, yeah. Yeah, so when we're thinking about, okay, what is happening here with students identified with an emotional behavior disorder, we all of those need to be a firm base. 
And um, the Beyond Behavior uh, special issue that Dr. Kathleen Lane led on all those low intensity behavior support, that yeah. should be in your toolbox and doing it all the time. And then we can just think about how do we build good math instruction with these tools being used frequently. Right. I think it does harken back to something that uh, Dr. Taylor mentioned in the first half of the episode, you know, where we really need to find the strategies, uh, engagement strategies uh, as part of the, the, uh, the, the instruction within that content area. So math, science, engagement comes first, right? And, uh, and we have to make sure that those are included if we're going to be successful in those those uh, STEM outcomes that we want to see. So, and one one other thing I would like to echo here, and this is um, so uh, Dr. Kimberly Vaness was my advisor during my doctoral program days, and she had done some research, um, and basically what they were finding were students students identified with emotional behavior disorders were missing out on a lot of instructional time. So if you're thinking about that, if teachers are um, maybe general education teachers, if they're using punishment procedures where, hey, get out of the class, go to the principal's office, hey, get out of the class and go to the special education room. Well, what's happening is all of those core skills in math, it's such a linear progression. So right. there just might be gaping holes in these key skills. So if you're trying to lay content down at fifth grade, but the student has major deficits in fourth grade content, third grade content, second grade content, it's going to, you're, you're facing a huge uphill battle. It feels like rolling a boulder up a mountain and you're like, where is the top of this mountain at? Right. It feels, it, it feels overwhelming. Right. And it's going to be so essential to think if we're, if we're going back to the instructional hierarchy again, figure out where to start instruction, right? So where, where is, where can I provide some acquisition learning for students and mm -hmm. then build influency on other skills? Excellent. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, that time out of the classroom affects every, every subject, right? I mean, social skills or, or reading, but perhaps in math, it has a specific relationship because of the, the sequencing of the, of the, um, the skills that are learned. So uh, it definitely is something to consider here um, as well. So, and, yeah, and not only does, you know, removing students from the classroom, you know, remove instructional time, right? It help it prevents them from gaining access to that instructional time. And some teachers might think that's a punishment, but what it could potentially be is actually reinforcing to those students and causing them to act out more in the future, right? Maybe escaping instructional time or task demands is why that they, why they're engaging in those challenging behaviors to get away from that stuff. And when we say get out of the classroom, go to the principal's office, go to the special ed room, like that's exactly what they want. They want to get away from that. So we, you know, I think working with gen ed teachers to understand some basic behavioral principles is very important too, and how to use some of these low intensity interventions, um, service management techniques to um, include in instruction and then we can look at what are the challenges for some of these students with the characteristics of mathematics, right? We can get over the hump of the challenge of behaviors and really focus in on that academic instruction. So can you kind of talk to us a little bit about what are some of the specific math difficulties that students face as they're acquiring this content knowledge? Yeah, so this is this is a this is actually an area we are still doing a lot of research in. So even the idea of what's the difference between a mathematics disability and a mathematics difficulty, right? So all we're changing is disability to difficulty. Right. What is the difference? <laughs> and um, 
it's it's just wild to see. So like in the world, if we're thinking about math difficulties, right? Researchers conceptualize that a whole bunch of ways. They might set a cut score at the 35th percentile rank on some standardized instrument. Other researchers might be focusing on the same population, but use the cut score at the 20th percentile rank. Whereas other researchers might even use a more stringent one. So then you're like, okay, well, what is it? So difficulty is basically conceptualized as students are not performing normative, right? Whereas mm -hmm. disability, typically when we're talking about math disability, we're thinking about like a biological component. And we are still working through what is that. Um, so going back to your point, there's almost two ways to think about figuring out what is difficulty or what is challenging. We can think about some cognitive processes. Um, so there's someone at UT Austin named Pung Pong. He is doing some amazing work looking at, hey, what are these cognitive processes that students bring to the table that um, could be in, impeding math, right? So some of the common ones he's found is working memory is huge for mathematical achievement. Rapid auto, automatized naming, RAN, which we actually see, this is a huge predictor of identifying students with dyslexia, right? Mm, so we see yeah. this comorbidity between reading difficulty and math difficulty. We have phonological processing, uh, processing speed and then attention. So these, these things all come to the table to help and then we can also look at, okay, well, what are students doing? And we typically see um, a lack of vocabulary. So Elizabeth Hughes at Penn State and Sarah Powell are doing some amazing work looking at the language we use to teach math. And they have a recent article in Teaching Exceptional Children where they were trying to get teachers to realize math is like teaching a foreign language, right? right? So we need to approach it as, and we've all read a statistics book and you start seeing Greek symbols. I skip right over that stuff. <laughs> Um, um, then, so like, anyway, we need, we have this language side of it. And then we, um, so students typically are going to struggle with retrieving facts. So you might still see fifth, sixth grade students, even up into middle school, using fingers to do simple calculations like seven plus three, right? That should right. be a huge red flag that we're having deficits here. Um, and then along with like building into like computation and procedural fluency with fractions, all of those things, Students are likely going to be using more immature procedures to do some of those things. Um, and that should be a huge red flag that we're going to need to build some acquisition, making sure they can perform the skill and then get fluency embedded on there. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting. If Again, thinking back to the first part of our episode with uh, JT Taylor, we were talking about the language in science and the vocabulary in science textbooks and how sometimes the traditional way of instructing science to students is here's the textbook on science stuff and getting past some of that challenging vocabulary can be really difficult for all I think all students to be honest with you but particularly students with disabilities and EBD and we talked about embedding literacy instruction within these other content areas and I just think it's really neat to see that parallel between science and math and I think sometimes we overlook those types of things. Yeah, and one thing, uh, if I could give one bit of advice, it would be get a vocabulary routine in your repertoire, right? Mm -hmm. Figure out, I'm um, just, this is the routine I'm gonna stick with. The one that I use a lot with my undergrad students is by uh, Anita Archer and Charles Hughes and Explicit Instruction. It is right. a very sequential thing that you can just employ at, at, at a whim. And um, that just needs to be part of our repertoire to build students' vocabulary. And once students understand the terms, then prompt them to use them, 
right? Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about fractions and the student says bottom number, say, hey, we call that the denominator. Give the student a chance to say denominator. Then you provide behavior-specific phrase, right? And it's simple error correction procedure. Mm -hmm. But like that is what we need to be incorporating um, to hopefully help fill some of these gaps. Yeah, for sure. When I was teaching uh, resource in, in a middle school, we started every day off with an explicit instruction lesson on, on specific vocabulary terms that we were going to be using throughout that lesson, just to build that knowledge of that vocab word that they may have not heard before. And I, you know, I think all of us would agree following, you know, Archer and Hughes, uh, their explicit instruction model is a great way to do that stuff because it's chalk with how to model those things, prompt those things, check them, and then do these error correction procedures. So I, I really appreciate bringing that out because it's very important for educators to know that we need to explicitly teach uh, vocabulary as well. And Ben, one, one other thing that I see some students run into issues with is some teachers actually might be providing some good vocabulary instruction, but the term selection can be an issue. So we Great need point. to terms. And then the other thing is there's a whole bunch of math terms that we need. So in Elizabeth Hughes and uh, Sarah Powell's, they estimated by the end of first grade, there's like 150, I think, terms kids Holy need to know. Cow. And then by the end of fifth grade, I think it was, I, I'm, I'm ballparking this, so you'll have to check me, but I think it's like 400. It's like outrageous. Yeah, um, it's nuts. So there's just math, but then we think there's all these just core academic terms like classify, right? Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily math specific, but students need to know that or describe, mm -hmm. um, oh, justify. Like think about all these just words that are going to be used ubiquitously across math, science, social studies, ELI reading all of these areas and students may lack those terms. So who's going to be teaching those, right? Whose job is it? Is it math teacher, science teacher? All of them kind of need to be on board and saying, hey, these terms are going to be important because they're written in the state standards. They're often going to be in question stems on high stakes assessments, mm -hmm. right? So students might know the math term because you taught it. If they don't know this other core academic term, guess what? They're not going to know what to do. Right, absolutely. So in terms of knowing what to do, um, you know, in preparing for this episode, but also uh, in, in, you know, just conducting research and planning classes and things, um, it's been difficult to determine what the state of affairs is with intervention for mathematics difficulties and disorders, particularly for EBD. It seems as though that area is receiving maybe a little bit less emphasis compared to interventions, say, for reading disabilities, right? Um, is this a good characterization of where we stand today is uh, Dr. Taylor mentioned that it's kind of like Swiss cheese, right? There's, there's, there's something there, but there's some holes in, in, in our, in our understanding right now. Would you, would you say the same thing? Yeah. So there, um, over the last decade, there has been an uptick in the amount of research specifically regarding math interventions. I can't speak to science. I bet you JT would tell you there's not a lot. He's like paving the way. But, yeah, he, um, called, he, called, he said the cheese is cheese whiz in a can for, <laughs> for science research. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of interesting because, um, so my wife does a lot of reading research, like that's her jam. Mm -hmm. And um, as I've been reading more and more, it kind of makes sense why we started with reading. Because when we look at research, we find reading to have a good predictive influence on math achievement. So like if you're stuck in a bind, it's like, am I going to do math or reading? Well, ideally you're going to do both. But if you're like doubling down time on reading, you're likely going to have a tangential impact on math. Now that's not to say we shouldn't be doing math research. We shouldn't be providing intensive math instruction, but there is going to be a tangential benefit 
of the student becoming more fluent in reading and then impacting their math achievement. Sure, sure. You know, something back from my days of teaching that I, I wanted to bring up while, while we had you captive on the episode, <laughs> um, you know, it, it does appear that, um, you know, a strong recommendation that I recall was that um, we focus on uh, some uh, identifying some foundational skills, counting or number, uh, numeric values, using algorithms, um, and provide research-based instruction on those foundational skills. But yet, as we mentioned at the beginning of this segment, um, there is also the need to meet those uh, Common Core State Standards. Um, for teachers that struggle with balancing those things, um, I know you've started to lean into how to do that a little bit, but can you give us some takeaway advice uh, on that? What would teachers need to do to consider bridging the, 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 the two? Yeah, this is a really challenging issue. So the first thing I would say is just be your own advocate, right? And I think that's something in higher ed, we don't do a great job of always teaching our, our teachers graduating from our programs on how to be a strong self-advocate. Because if you just merely try to teach grade level content and students are lacking prerequisite skills, it's gonna, be, it's gonna take you a major amount of time to actually accomplish that. And it would probably be more efficient to backfill and then work. Hmm. And never mind, you might be able to get them to be, to demonstrate the skill at an acquisition stage initially, they're gonna forget it in a week or two. So you're always gonna be better off figuring out exactly what you said, what are those core skills? So doing some type of vertical alignment, right? So there's a bunch of ways. You mentioned the Common Core State Standards, that there's a coherence map for Achieve the Core that's pretty phenomenal. You find the standard, you can zoom out, and it literally shows you all the standards that feed into that from previous grades. That's a great way to start and say, hey, look, we're not ready for this, but these standards I am teaching actually funnel right to this. That's great. excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So just thinking through some of the ways to justify what you're doing and collect data, right? So say, look, we're, we're kind of using some type of mastery measure, measurement for CBM. Hey, we've got proficiency. The kid's fluent. We get, then go to the next skill. We get to uh, proficiency and fluency. We go to the next skill. And you'll just, you'll eventually work up there, right? But right. if you're just trying to drill, and particularly, we're going to go back a couple seconds. If we're thinking about students with emotional behavior disorders, right? Oh yeah, let's try to lay this content down you're not ready for. You're just <laughs> increasing the likelihood of escape, maintain behavior, all the things mm -hmm. y'all already mentioned. Um, and now you're fighting two battles. Right. right, yeah. Let's let's take a break here. Um, and, and we'll be back with Corey in a minute. Recently, CCBD conducted open elections for several positions on the executive board. We'd like to congratulate those who have committed to providing their time, energy, and ideas to CCBD over the next years to help improve outcomes for students with emotional and behavioral disorders. Join us in welcoming CCBD's 2020 elected board members and representatives, Drs. Tim Landrum, Candace Molke, Nicole Turcote, Whitney Hanley, and Erica Pinter. Contact executive committee members at www.ccbd.net slash about slash executive committee. Brian and Ben continue their investigation of academic interventions for students with emotional and behavioral disorders in their next episode of Behavior Now. 
Join them next time as they explore effective co-teaching strategies for students with EBD. Learn more about successful co-teaching strategies and more in Episode 3 of Behavior Now, available early summer. Listen to past episodes at www.ccbd.net slash teacher resources. So, Corey, we were starting to talk about some of the specific instructional recommendations for students with math difficulties. Uh, when we focus on the population with comorbid uh, emotional behavior disorders, we need to consider strategies that work both for academics and, in this case, in our case today, mathematics and behavior at the same time. You know, uh, kind of two birds, one stone kind of deal. Can you talk to us about some of those things? I know we touched on it a little bit earlier with some of the low intensive strategies that Lane and et al. put out in their special issue on Beyond Behavior, but can you dive into that a little bit more and provide some insight on these dual use interventions? Yeah, of course. So uh, one of the things to consider, right, is we're thinking about the topography of emotional behavior disorders, right? What are the characteristics of this and what interventions are gonna best match to kind of fill those voids. And when we're thinking about behavioral inhibition, right, and attentiveness being a predictor of student performance, this is why self-management interventions make so much sense, right? Focusing on self-monitoring. We can use self-graphing as a like a motivation support, right? Hey, you meet your goal, you get this backup token reinforcer, right? So including those is so critical because that's what we're that's what's actually matching our students' needs. And it's interesting, um, I had wrapped up a meta-analysis on um, manipulatives, so math manipulatives. And what was so interesting was um, when I looked at the research, there was very few studies that actually said, hey, let's pull kids with emotional behavior disorders, embed these nice behavioral components to the interventions with manipulatives. Mm. So what happened where there were students with emotional behavior disorders kind of plopped into these random studies where the focus was more on the LD population. And right. what happened is um, when we looked at the results, students with emotional behavior disorders, their effects were way less than all the other populations. And I'm hypothesizing here, that's one of the reasons, right? We can't forget <laughs> all of these behavioral components that we know work. And sure. um, his, uh, there's, um, I actually, we, I just wrapped up another meta-analysis that got published today, actually. Oh, um, yeah. Nice. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. It was on teacher-mediated math interventions for kids with EBD, right, versus student-mediated. So when we're thinking about self-monitoring, cover copying, compare all these things, the student is the one carrying out the intervention. And there's a dense research there. Like, we have a good amount of research on some of these student-mediated interventions we do not have a lot of research on teacher-mediated interventions. Right. And the thing I wanna consider is we need both. Like at the end of the day, that's what we need, we need both. Students with emotional behavior disorders, they can't just self-monitor their way to proficiency in math, right? I can right. self-monitor my accuracy all I want, but if I'm not getting instruction with it that's good, it's not gonna get me anywhere. Mm. So um, I'm so glad y'all brought this up. We, we need to bridge both of these things together and design really good programs that include things like self-monitoring, self-graphing, self-management, along with high-quality math instruction. Right, right. And and speaking of your review, uh, your reviewing, I know you've you've done a good bit in the the realm of literature reviews and meta-analysis uh, recently. 
And um, so you've reviewed some specific math instructional practices that have uh, shown some positive effects for students with disabilities, but EBD populations in, specifically. Um, so to help us sort out the status of some of these practices, I wanted to kind of go into uh, uh, sort of a rapid fire uh, technique here where um, I, I can spit out a, a, a practice that we, we, we've heard the buzzword, right? We, we've, we've heard of this thing, maybe in a professional development uh, provided by our schools or something else. Um, but maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what it is, how it's used, and how strong the evidence appears to be uh, for supporting students with EBD in math, okay? Yep. Okay, so let's start with something like schema-based instruction. What yeah, is great. Yeah, so schema-based instruction is solely focused on teaching students to identify the underlying structure of a word problem, right? So getting a firm understanding of there's different additive structures, multiplicative structures, ratio proportion structures, and once students understand that underlying structure, they can then think through a solution plan that would make sense. So um, the Fuchs team, Asha Jatendra, Sarah Powell now, they, they paved the way. There is so much research on schema-based instruction. Mm -hmm. And they found, hey, it's effective for kids in general. It's effective for kids not identified with a disability. It's effective, it's effective for kids with a disability. Now, when we think specifically about students with emotional behavior disorders, that's where we're kind of lost, right? So okay. in these large randomized control trials, there might've been kids with EBD in there, but we don't have their unique data to know how they responded. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so today I've carried out two single case studies for kids with EBD. There are things that went well, things that didn't go well, and I'm gonna actually echo back. I did not have a strong behavioral component to my intervention. There was a min minimal token economy implemented, but if okay. I was to start trying to replicate some of this research more, I would include much more of those uh, behavior management, those like self-monitoring, self all of those things, right? Uh -huh. um, and then Asher Detendra carried out, it wasn't an experimental study, but she carried out um, an experiment, including kids with EBD and showed benefits. So that's an area we need to do more replication of these interventions with this specific population to figure out, hey, what are the other components that need to be embedded for this to be super successful? Okay, good, good. Um, next one, ready? Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, self-regulated strategy development. We've heard the term. Tell us about it. Yeah, so SRSD is just rampant, right? Karen Harris, Steve Graham developed this puppy, and we've been using it for writing for years, transferring right. over to reading. So Absolutely. Mickey, yeah, Mickey Lozinski and um, Robin Ennis-Parks have started developing some for fractions. So they've started with fractions. Fractions is one of the areas students have so much challenge with, and I'll send you a link to the website where they have some of the materials. But basically what it involves is you're activating the student's prior knowledge related to the concept. You're explaining the benefits and the expectations for carrying it out. You then go through some cognitive uh, modeling of the strategy through Think Aloud. You then get students to rehearse the strategy so they can do it down pat, right? They need to be fluent in carrying out that procedure. They'll then practice it with feedback from you, and then there's some independence. So it, it basically, it parallels really nicely with explicit instruction, right? It's yeah, all it's of the components yeah. are there. And um, so there's the area specifically in math, it's growing, right? So we don't have enough research studies yet to say, hey, this thing is evidence-based for math. But right. what we can say is there's such a firm foundation of all of these working components that that would be a nice intervention to include as part of your practice. Sure, yeah. And, and especially if, for instance, we, we have some research on it 
with uh, teaching fractions. So it may be a little bit more specialized rather than just globally saying math, uh, but a specific topic within math, absolutely. Yeah, and we've seen, we have seen in some of the research where there's a carryover, not only in the academic, positive academic outcomes using SRSD, but also some behavioral, positive behavioral outcomes using SRSD as well. So we're seeing, again, that kind of dual purpose intervention where we're hitting the academics and we're hitting the behaviors, which is, you know, if you can get more juice out of the orange, so to speak, like, mm -hmm. why not? It seems to be the way when you focus on self-regulation, doesn't it? That we get yeah. more bang for our buck, so... Yeah. And the other thing I would like to echo is if you're carrying out self-regulated strategy development for writing, for example, where we have so much research for students with EBD, well, students are going to understand the routine. So then kind of transferring yeah. it over to mathematics, like that routine's in place, all of it, it's, the, it's likely going to be a very fluid process for you to do that. That's a great point. Right. Okay, next one. Corey, what can you tell us about manipulatives, using manipulatives to support math? Great. Um, so I, I mentioned this earlier. Uh, they're effective, very effective. But something we need to keep in mind is a manipulative in and of itself doesn't do anything, right? So let's think. Good if point. I give a kid a tool, it is not helping students make the abstract connection. And right. um, so what we need to think about is how do we actually use them? And a majority of the research has been um, done with manipulatives as part of the CRA framework. And I'll go on a little diatribe right here. There is kind of a difference between a CRA sequence and a CRA framework or CRA integrated. And basically when the CRA sequence first came along, teachers would have students use the manipulatives until they met a criterion. They would then go to the representational stage. Until the students met a criterion, they would then go to the abstract stage. And what was happening was, it was that process was taking a long time. And by the time the students got to the abstract, they weren't making the connection back to how the, the, the manipulatives they use were relating to it. Okay. So what, they, what we've walked through now is the CRA integrated, it's use it more as a framework. So students can be using manipulatives while the abstract is present. And mm -hmm. one, of the, one, of the big, um, one of the big changes is as a teacher, if you're modeling with the manipulatives, after each step of the process, you show the abstract next to it. So you are making that connection early on. This is, this is how the manipulatives are helping us explain this abstract notation. Okay. Margaret Flores and Stephanie Murano um, actually carried out, they've carried out two studies now. And basically what they found is the CRA sequence and the CRA framework both work. They both were effective. However, the CRA framework was much more efficient, right? And think of what is the most valuable commodity for you as a teacher time, right? Mm -hmm. So if we yeah. could do this in less time, that's going to be super powerful. The other element I want to make is Emily Book is killing it and Rajiv Satsangi with virtual manipulatives. So they're thinking through, well, what are some of the benefits of using maybe an a iPad device, some other way to access um, uh, these materials? And like they're portable, right? So I could actually use manipulatives in science class if we're doing something math related. Right. Um, and then for certain mathematical concepts, especially when we start getting to higher level math, virtual manipulatives might be able to represent those concepts a little bit better than you can with concrete manipulatives. So um, in some of Emily Book's work and even Rajiv Satsangi, they haven't even used the CRA framework. They might have done a modified VRA where it's virtual representational abstract. And in some of Emily Book's recent studies, she's dropped the R altogether and just done virtual straight to abstract. And all of these things could save us time and efficiency, right? So just thinking through very carefully, what, what are we doing here? 
Um, what, what's the point of the manipulative, I guess I should say? Sure. Yeah. And it helps, uh, you know, the cross-disciplinary uh, learning and um, probably in a time like we are in now where we're relying heavily on online learning, uh, some of those virtual manipulatives would really, really be handy. So, yeah. And um, one other thing I'd like to echo here is um, the original, the reason we carried out the meta-analysis on manipulatives we did is because um, there was a study done um, from a school site, uh, is it school psych? Maybe ed psych on manipulatives and her name was Carbono. And what she had found, she did like all group design studies. So this was a massive project. Okay. And one of the variables I found super interesting was the perceptual richness of a manipulative. So was the manipulative representing a real thing or was it very bland? And basically what she found is the more rich the manipulative, that hurt effects. Hmm. Think about that for a second. Yeah. So hmm. we're going to be better off using very bland manipulatives versus rich ones. And Can it's you give us an example? What is a rich manipulative versus a bland? Uh, so if I was using something like um, counting bears and the bears were representing bears. So in the task, I'm like, hey, we have five bears and now we have three more bears and I'm using bears. Well, what's happening is the students are tying the bears rather not realizing the bear is just representing a number or quantity of five and three. Right. And like, I know when I was teaching, I ran into the same issue. I had a student, he loved minions. Minions were his freaking thing. <laughs> but, but we would, we would like actually use like minion things to represent that concept. Well, the kid was perseverating on them. Okay. Right. And like, so basically it's like serving as this, it's impeding the student's understanding that this thing is not representing a minion, right? It's representing this abstract mathematical concept that I'm supposed to be focusing on. Okay. So just be very strategic and thinking about some of those things when selecting manipulatives to use. Sure, yeah, it can either lead to perseveration on that, that thing, or maybe there's not the background knowledge there, right? So mm -hmm. black bears versus bears, right? You start to perseverate on the, the black bear and maybe I don't know what a black bear is. So, yeah. Um, I've got two more for you. Okay. Next is error analysis. And I know that that's something that you focused on with one of your reviews. So can you tell us about error analysis? Yeah. So I love the idea of error analysis yet. We just don't have a firm research base in it yet. So I had read, I had written a practitioner article for beyond behavior, just because this is something that so many teachers I know do, and even it's recommended on the National Center for Intensive Intervention as a component of good intervention. And basically what it consists of is you are looking deeply at the student work to figure out where a misconception may lie and help inform instruction. So the example is, if I'm doing a problem solving task, there are so many aspects of mathematical problem solving. I need to read a problem, I need to have an attack plan ready, I need to identify the structure, and then I have to carry out a computation. So if, if I just say this problem's wrong, this problem's right, this problem's wrong, this problem's wrong, mm -hmm. I might end up providing instruction on a skill the kid doesn't need. So if all the kid is making is the computational deficit or a computational error, I might focus on teaching them problem solving structures when they did all of that correctly. Right. So is really critical so the only there's very few studies so paul riccamini who ben you mentioned earlier paul's carried out some error analysis work on computational tasks on figuring out hey where within our standard alg algorithm for maybe addition and subtraction or multiplication and division do we see the error occurring and then targeting instruction there nice okay so that one maybe a little less information out there right now for teachers mm -hmm. to lean on um, I think I it's really interesting that, that everyone, 
not everyone, that's an overgeneralization, but a lot of folks say, hey, we need to do error analysis. Um, even in, if you're an EdTPA state, it's in EdTPA. Like you need to do an error analysis on your students' learning. And it's just really interesting to see that maybe there's a foundation, but it might not be a super strong foundation um, for that yet. Well, I, so here's what I'll, I'll, I'll caution this a little bit. There is research out there. There's not experimental research demonstrating that a teacher engaging in error analysis is going to boost student outcomes. Mm. So this is where like we're kind of getting down in the weeds. And this is why sometimes I love Dan Maggins talk about like it's not an evidence. We should think about the evidence based movement we're going through right now as a process versus just identifying these specific interventions. Right. Because mm. yeah, right. especially when we're in the world of emotional behavior disorders, we don't have a lot of research to rely on for this niche population, yeah. but we can pull from other areas and think through, well, this probably is likely going to be something that would be higher value for me. Um, so I would, I would recommend to engage in error analysis. I would say that would be a good thing to do. It's going to inform programming. It's going to inform your instructional decision-making process. It will probably help with your efficiency. Um, it's just, this is an area we need to grow in along with, one of the things that Paul found is teachers were not great at it, making instructional decisions once they found errors. So he found teachers were great at identifying where an error was, but then what should I do knowing this mm -hmm. error? That was an issue, right? So those of us in higher ed really need to think about how can we teach teachers to do this better? Um, yeah. yeah. Last one, Corey, inquiry-based learning. That's something that we talked with uh, Dr. Taylor quite heavily about. Um, it does it. Is it a good uh, approach? Is it a bad one for science? What about for math? Yeah, so this this is honestly where we're at now in the math wars, I guess, if you could call it. And uh, on, a, on a recent podcast, Amanda Vander Hayden did. She was like, let's get a science of math movement. So I'm sure a lot of teachers have probably seen the science of reading movement. Emily Hanford's been blowing this up to see, hey, we need to rethink how we're providing reading instruction. And some of these same issues are in math. Um, so basically, uh, let's go back to the instructional hierarchy really quick, mm -hmm. right? So we have acquisition, fluency, generalization. Um, what I would, what I, in there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so what I, what I would say is, the inquiry-based approach might be helpful at the generalization stage, right? That might be a decent pedagogical decision there, but we have so many students who have not acquired skills and build fluency in them that it might not be the best approach to use as your go-to instructional program. Um, the, the research based on the use of explicit instruction for students identified with disabilities at risk for mathematical difficulties is so rich that that would probably be the framework you would want to use a uh, majority of the time. No, absolutely. Okay. And just thinking of some of these practices that we've talked about, I know there are some that we haven't talked about, and thinking about what we do, uh, preparing teachers to go out and teach. You know, when they leave us, when they leave the university, they're kind of at this level where like they've been able to obtain licensure, they've taken our classes, they've had some experience, but there's still a lot of learning to be done on the job, if you will, right? They're, now it's actually doing this stuff full time all the time. So if there were a handful of strategies, practices, or approaches that you would suggest for novice teachers to really hone in on, what might those be? 
Yeah, so I'm gonna actually backtrack for a second then and say sure. um, there's a professor at Texas A&M in the reading department. Her name's Emily Cantrell. She is amazing. And one of the things she tries to ingrain in all of her teachers is to be a critical consumer, right? And think about that role of being a very critical consumer of materials. So like going on teachers pay teachers. We're probably never gonna break that from happening, but if we can teach teachers to be a critical consumer of what's out there, that might be a better approach, right? Or going on Pinterest to find things, being a critical consumer of what we're doing. Now, would those be my first stomping grounds? Probably not. Um, right. And it's interesting because I just wrapped up a survey study for Oklahoma teachers. Those were the two top resources used to plan math instruction. Right. So I'm like, taking a step back and thinking what, what, where, where else should we go? Right. Um, and there's just, there's so many res resources out there to do that. So Ben, going back to your question, what should we do? Vocabulary routine. That needs to be part of our repertoire. Getting very familiar with the CRA framework, how that process evolves is going to give you so much mileage as a teacher. Being fluent in understanding the structures, additive structures, multiplicative structures, ratio proportion structures as part of schema instruction, those three things alone are going to be super important. And then figuring out what is the fluency routine I'm going to embed in my practice to boost students' fluency with basic arithmetic retrieval or just fact retrieval, computation, and figuring out ways. Those don't always have to be just worksheets, right? That's one of the big Big people say, oh, we're just doing drill and kill. Well, you don't have to have the students be doing worksheets for 10 hours, right? You can embed it in game formats, um, peer, peer tutoring opportunities. There's so many ways to embed good, solid fluency practice that's not a worksheet. I think that's something that gets a bad rap too is, is the concept of practice, right? When it comes to all academic content areas, like we don't bat an eye when a concert pianist is practicing to get better, right? Or an athlete is engaging in hours of practice to hone their craft and perfect their skills. But for some reason, when it comes to academics or even behavior, practice is like taboo and it goes to like drill and kill and like, how dare you practice? And it's like, what do you do? It's hard for me to wrap my head around that. So I'm really glad- Good versus bad that practice. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there is bad practice, right? If we're practicing things improperly, um, or there's no guidance for it and then we're practicing errors, like that's a problem, right? But if we're doing proper practice, that I think that's important. Yeah, and I, I do wanna echo, so in, um, in Amanda Vander Hayden's recent podcast, she had a phenomenal quote, which I can't recite to you, but basically one of the attacks is like, people are claiming fluency is the death of creativity and inquiry and all these things. And that's just, the research does not support that. Fluency is actually, creativity and flexibility, it's a byproduct of being fluent, right? right. You cannot yeah. do those things if you are not fluent. And like, even thinking about like running statistical software, right? Like people are developing really cool packages in R to do meta-analysis and things I'm interested in. Well, guess what? They're very fluent in those procedures to then develop those things. Right. So just like really thinking through and like, this is where be an advocate, right? So you need to be an advocate for your own practice and be a good colleague, right? Share information with colleagues, learn to have some of those difficult conversations. It doesn't have to be a fight, right? Mm -hmm. But there's ways like you can be a, such a strong agent in your school. Um, and I tell my undergrads this all the time. We have a, a dearth of special education teachers in the state of Oklahoma. 
So what happens is our students graduate, they go get jobs. They might be like the department head within the first couple of years because they're the most established, trained individual. You can mm -hmm. have such, you can have so much impact at your school system um, if you're, if you basically develop into a leader and can have good communication skills. Sure. Yeah. Developing, developing leaders is uh, different than it was. And, and uh, there's, there's new uh, considerations because, you know, we're relying on younger and younger, uh, more novice folks to fill those positions. So, um, you know, uh, Dr. Peltier, I think you've given us a lot to think about. It's been a great session. Um, I think students with EBD can benefit greatly from inclusion in STEM and yourself and Dr. Taylor have both given us some good recommendations for being intentional and inclusive about math education and science education for this population. Uh, we really appreciate your time and insight. Um, what can we look for in the near future from Dr. Peltier that will give us uh, more info on supporting students with math difficulties and disabilities? Yeah, so there's really, there's two major projects we're trying to get off the ground. So one of them is really looking closely at the behavioral components that will allow students to become more fluent in problem solving. All the stuff I just talked about, my failed experiment that didn't work out so well, <laughs> that's what we're trying to figure out. And then the other side of it is, I'm really, really interested in the content knowledge of teachers, right? So we mm. see from reading, the stronger reading content knowledge teachers have is very predictive of their quality of practice. So how right. can we think about providing, like what is the best route to provide professional development in providing math instruction? And right. that's something I'm like currently working through a grant to get some money to figure out how to do that well. That's great stuff. And, yeah, and uh, awesome. we'll look forward to, to reading about it as you, as you uh, put it out there and publish. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're probably already <laughs> going to heavily rely on some of your past work. So some of your future work is even that much more exciting. So, uh, thanks for being with us today, Dr. Peltier. Yeah, thanks, and, Corey. And we really appreciate it. Uh, behavior now podcast is, is really, uh, nothing without experts like you contributing your time and your expertise, uh, so that we can inform teachers, uh, and, and other researchers and ourselves. Ben and I have learned a lot already. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, thanks for having me, y'all. Yeah, we really appreciate your time. The Behavior Now podcast is brought to you by the Council for Children with Behavioral Disorders, a division of the Council for Exceptional Children. To access the audio file or a transcript of this podcast, please visit www.ccbd.net slash teacher resources. On behalf of the CCBD organization and your hosts, Brian Barber at Kent State and Ben Ryden at James Madison University, we'll see you next time.
The Council for Children with Behavioral Disorders presents Behavior Now, a podcast series for educators and education professionals on topics related to the behavior, mental, and social-emotional health of children. The Behavior Now podcast offers a thoughtful discussion of current topics faced by those who support and educate youth with and without disabilities. That is part of the mission of CCBD to bring quarterly media content to its members. Join your hosts, Brian Barber and Ben Ryden, as they follow the science related to children with behavioral disorders. Our topic for the episode is STEM learning in students with EBD. We'll talk to doctors John T. Taylor and Corey Peltier about one, the role of core academics and behavioral skills in the success of students with EBD in the areas of science and math, two, difficulties experienced by these students in acquisition and retention of core science and math knowledge, and three, how changes and approaches to STEM teaching should feature embedded academic and behavioral supports within instruction to support students with EBD. For CCBD, I'm Ben Ryden, and with you is my co-host, Brian Barber. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Behavior Now. So Ben, how are you doing with society being upended? I don't know, man. It's it's been a ride recently, and not even recently, but over the past few months with COVID nineteen, and then the reopening of our country, and we're seeing numbers spike in different pockets of the country. We have, as some of you may know, currently I live in Minnesota. We've been going through nationally now worldwide this kind of civil uprising, if you will. Yeah, the civil unrest where we have some really strong things to say. And we need people to be listening to us. And I also catch myself in this pattern of what's called doom scrolling, where you just scroll through social media and look at just all of this doom and gloom that's going on around us because it's at times kind of inescapable. Right, we're just in it, and we feel engulfed in it. And uh, scroll, I like that. Yeah, doom scrolling. I just saw it yesterday, so I thought I would coin the term and start using it on my own, and not taking credit for it. But you got it. it. We'll give you the credit. (laughs) But it's just wild, man. It's just wild. Um, It feels like a lot of voices are going unheard right now, even though we're seeing it all over the place. You know, we're seeing so people is Duluth what particularly uh, progressive in that they're, you know, do you see a lot of uh, the social unrest in, in, in Duluth or is it pretty much downstate? Yeah, our population up here in Duluth, we have a, a really large Native American population that oh, yeah. really has a lot to say, right? Okay. Rightfully so. And, and you're seeing... Uh, not only the Black Lives Matter movement, but also we're seeing up here is this Native American movement of saying like we matter um, as well. And we think about this colonialism and the things that are happening now. Um, it's just an interesting mix up here in Duluth. We are a predominantly white area, mm. but we have a youth contingency up here that's very progressive and they're making their voices heard. And we're having protests and 
and all those things up here as well. So it's definitely definitely um, being felt up here in, in Duluth. How about over in Kent? Over at Kent. Yeah. So I mean, you know, Cleveland has had its moments. I think recently, you know, um, unfortunately, a couple of those moments turned into, you know, smashing windows and you know grabbing some, you know, looting or whatever. But for the most part, it's been peaceful and. You know, Kent's got a sort of like a tradition of activism. And uh, so, you know, over here we see little pockets of, of folks. And uh, I think everybody's coming out for this. I think it's a good thing. I don't know. It's made me think about like the link between social revolution and scientific revolution. I don't know if you ever read the book uh, by Thomas Kuhn. It's an old book. It's like, I think it's from the 60s, but it was about the structure of scientific revolution and how normal scientific endeavors uh, get interrupted by like new ideas, right? New paradigms. Uh, he, he called them paradigms. And what that means is looking at, at old questions or, or, or I think that that's pretty relevant to, you know, our talks with this podcast and such, um, because we like to move beyond just what we're doing at this, in this paradigm, and start to look at how we can change the rules for students with disabilities, right? And sometimes, sometimes that's hard. And I don't know if there's an exact translation between a social revolution and scientific one. And I certainly don't mean to demean the current social one by saying so. Um, but it looks like right now there might be a crisis that is existing, right, in, in, uh, in our social fabric. And something like Thomas Kuhn's ideas about uh, revolutionary science, you know, how to how to upend those uh, obvious assumptions that we've had and be bold and put ideas out there. It might be something that, uh, that, that does translate a little bit. It certainly feels like it when I go out and I see everybody joining in this, in, you know, in, in one large protest of, you know, just, just uh, civil in, injustice, right. Or injustice. So. Yeah. And I think that can parallel, you know, some of the things that we do in academia and, and, our science and we get sometimes stuck in the rut of our old ways of doing things and sometimes things come around come along where it might be this kind of revolutionary study where it makes people start to look at things a little bit differently and you know I think we can kind of make a parallel to some of the protests that are happening now that you know are bringing these things to the forefront of all of our thinking and trying to help us push the envelope and push push the needle in to a better direction, to a better direction. And I think you can make those um, sort of parallels. Yeah. I don't know what it's going to be like after COVID's over and what the results of the protests are going to be. But I do know, or I think we all know uh, that while we're trying to figure it all out, there are going to be some bold scientists that are changing the game through advancements in science and technology and engineering and math or what we like to call STEM, right? Um, and I think we've seen a nation, uh, a national push to increase students' knowledge in these STEM fields, right? So a lot of the innovation, those bold ideas that we're talking about, probably there's a good amount of them that are going to come from the STEM fields. Um, and that push might be due to that large job market that's, you know, sort of growing for the STEM-related vocations in the next 20 years. Um, I know that the National Research Council has stated that uh, uh, students' science content and their process uh, knowledge about science is critical right now because in today's society, scientific knowledge is needed to be an informed consumer 
and to make everyday decisions, right? Um, I've recently become an informed consumer. I now know what ultra toilet paper refers to. <laughs> Do you know what it refers to? I mean, I, I see it on the branding. I see, well, when there were still, when there strong, was strong, I see super soft. <laughs> I see soup, just super, right? Ultra toilet paper, Ben. Ultra toilet paper refers to thicker, softer, more absorbent toilet paper. It's used, it uses technology that I never even heard of. It's like blowing the air fibers during a process to make it fluffy and soft. I, don't, I didn't even know that. So I don't know. Okay, so well, with that, I think it's time to introduce our 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 guest. Uh, our guest today is J.T. Taylor. He is an associate professor of special education at Penn State University. His research examines effective strategies for inclusive STEM education for students with disabilities, classroom and behavior management strategies, and improving school and classroom relationships. Prior to working in higher ed, um, he taught in a variety of educational settings and worked with students with a range of cognitive and behavioral disorders. Dr. Taylor is curr currently sits on the executive committee for the Council for Children with Behavioral Disorders, is a member of the National Science Teachers Association Special Needs Advisory Board, uh, and the leader, Leadership Development Committee for CEC. He's also the president of the o organization Science Education for Students with Disabilities, and he just happens to be my former mentor, and I just could not be more stoked to have him on uh, as a guest today. So that's awesome. Welcome, JT. So, what can you tell us about toilet paper, or perhaps just the you know science of learning for students with EBD? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's the best intro ever. Uh, who does not like toilet paper? Uh, that's that is the question, uh, and. I, let me see if I can connect these dots here. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think I heard you guys talking about the kind of social and scientific revolutions, right? Yeah, yeah. I am a big fan of believing that science revolutions lead to social revolutions. Uh, let's take, for example, technology. It started with just, you know, videotaping things, and now we have social media, which is fueling our social revolution. And... I feel like toilet paper is part of that. It toilet is. paper technology is fueling our social revolution for better. If you connect those dots, that would be amazing. Well, right? I mean, think, think about it. What, what was the first thing that ran out of the shelves when we started, uh, you know, social distancing? It was toilet paper. That seems, that seems quite social. Mm -hmm. And the science behind toilet paper makes you a much better consumer. Because now you know. Now the real question is, are you over or under when you put your toilet paper on the roll? Oh, that is oh. that is the question of our time. There is a there is a decision in my household, <laughs> <laughs> and I am losing on that end of the day. Well, Did you know that you're over or under? I was an under. What was? Uh, yes, I am now an over. You've been outnumbered. You've been outnumbered. <laughs> yes, and actually, on the original patent, did you know that it shows that it is an over for toilet paper? What? Yep. No Boom. kidding. See, yeah, on the original patent. Ben, because of your that that technological technology advancement of toilet paper, you had an individualized social revolution happen in your house. So, <laughs> so there you go. 
we don't want to create a, a, a rift between the overs and the unders here, though. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this will go down in history as the best intro to a podcast ever, ever. I'll take I don't it. care what we talk about in the future. I don't care. <laughs> This, this is in the, this is for the record books. I mean, these are important topics. Come on, they are, they are. Uh, important for our time, man. Yeah. I'm uh, going to STEM. I'm going to STEM now. Let's do it. Let's, let's do it. Let's go All right. Tell me if this is true. Only two percent of individuals with disabilities participate in the STEM workforce. So that is not true. <laughs> <laughs> that is a that is a that. It is a is not very many, but it's not, not as low as two percent. Okay. The actual number, at least the last that it has been checked, is somewhere around ten to eleven percent. Ten to eleven. That's still low as as all. Oh no no no! It's, it's way low. It's like it is it is significantly lower than individuals without disabilities. So so why is this? Why why are they not getting uh, STEM jobs? Man, that is um kind of a multifaceted. Uh, we got time. We can yeah, get you know. back to toilet paper later. We can. We can. <laughs> that is what I'm really perseverating on. That, uh, uh, <laughs> the so this is the thing. Um, so there's a there's a really popular kind of um, uh, graphic uh, infographic in STEM about a leaky pipeline, and, and it makes sense where you know people kind of drop out of STEM interest over time and that's where the leaks are in this pipeline. And, and it's, a, it's a valid point because once that water comes out of that pipe, wherever it is, at loose joints or whatever, you can't get, put that water back. <laughs> so it, it's, it's out. I'm, um, seeing, I'm seeing the pipe. Yeah. So. I, I tend to like a, a different analogy that some other researchers um, I've talked about with other researchers where it's kind of more of an on off ramp um, where we can get students on at different points, but we also lose students at that same off ramp, okay. you know? So, and that's kind of what happens with uh, STEM and, and um, individuals with disabilities. Uh, first getting them kind of like in these science and STEM classrooms in elementary school and middle school and high school. Um, and even outside of working with individuals and kids with disabilities, STEM at the elementary level, science in particular, is insane. It is just super hit or miss. Mm. Um, it looks so different in so many different places um, because we spend a lot more time. And, and it's always interesting talking about STEM because most of the time when you talk about STEM, we're really talking about math and not necessarily science. Really? Um, okay. But yeah, it, it starts at elementary school and then you, we lose students, both with and without disabilities throughout the rest of that kind of career. And by the time we get to college, you know, it's kind of only certain students majoring in STEM fields. And then right, right. on that is, is getting jobs. And, and if you have less people to put into the pipeline to begin with, you're going to have less people coming out of that pipeline. Um, and then with any other difficulties with just being employed uh, or getting employment, you know, particularly if you have students with kind of invisible disabilities, you know, it, it becomes one of those things where do I disclose that I have a disability? And does and if I if I do disclose it, will that kind of um, 
normal will say this out loud, but will that hinder me from getting a job? Sure. You know, so it's, uh, you know, all of these kind of different factors that, that influence that number, but it is significantly lower um, than individuals without disabilities in, in the STEM field. Interesting. So that's, if you think about it, it's like one, I think the number is one in nine persons in the STEM field have a disability. Um, so I know when I, when I was teaching high school, I, I taught in a self-contained classroom and my students didn't have access to STEM courses. Uh, most of their time was spent either with myself or the other self-contained uh, teacher in the, in the building. And there was this morning where across the announcements, they made an announcement about bridge breaking. There was a bridge breaking competition going on in the school. <clears throat> and my students turned around, they were like, what the hell was bridge breaking? And because we were, it was probably stronger language with that than that because it was a self-contained classroom. But, you know, I explained to them, you know, this is where you build these structures out of like balsa wood or whatever other materials and you try to hang as much weight from them as possible to see which one will, you know, hold the most weight. That's a very quick breakdown of what that was. And they were like, why can't we do that? And I didn't have a good answer for them. So we started doing STEMI things in the self-contained classroom because as long as they weren't like tearing the school apart, it was fine, right? So I was able to do that. But how can we help, you know, how can providing students with disabilities access to STEM coursework in, you know, either elementary, middle school or high school, how can that help lead to these positive outcomes uh, once they graduate or move on to college? And is, I think you hit the nail on the head. Is the access and the opportunity to do stuff like doing STEM stuff, man. Uh, that's super scientific, but it's like the, <laughs> it is the best way to kind of explain it. Um, I'm gonna plug your your paper that you wrote uh, about having a STEM party, um, and that was a that was a really I mean it it was a really good little paper to talk about your experiences as this teacher in your classroom with your students and really the opportunity came just because you didn't have a better answer to tell them as to why they couldn't or why they shouldn't and if we took that approach if we all took that approach well, hold on now what you know i try to follow along with the what you guys all write right but i haven't heard of a stem party so or you know what our listeners might not have heard of the stem party so can, can what we, the heck is a STEM party? Can we drop a yeah. link to that in the in the in the oh, transcript? Yeah, thing? We'll, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll uh we'll link the article. It was an ASCD, and it was basically about that story that I just told. Um, and what I did is I came up with this strategy for my students to do STEM stuff, and it was around practicing, asking questions, reinforcing students for, you know, trying, even just trying, even if because in a lot of the STEM coursework that I've been privy to, I've hung out with STEM teachers. I always kind of on my planning periods, instead of planning, I would go to the STEM classes to see what cool stuff they were doing. So I kind of bring that work into my classroom and do that with my students. And so I came up with a strategy. It was a STEM party. And like I said, we'll link that, but um, it all basically culminated in doing this project called Firehouse Mouse where the goal was to 
put a, uh, a candle out using the only force of energy was a mousetrap. So you'd set the mousetrap off and then whatever you attached to the business end of the mousetrap had to blow out the candle, right? And had some kids doing just some really crazy stuff. We almost burned a school down. Um, wow. That's okay because <laughs> it didn't happen and I put it out. Um, but during this lesson, we did, um, I set up a bank, right? And then I got these bank registers, you know, where you keep track of how much money you have, how much money is coming in, going out. And they had, I stocked a store with stuff they needed, with stuff they didn't need, and they went shopping. So we made this whole big entire lesson and it that we were doing math stuff, engineering stuff, science stuff. I am not a science, science person. Like that's not my thing, but um, I'm actually really not my thing, but it's important for our students to be doing that. So that kind of, that paper without going into too much detail about it is really just about how I did that in my one, uh, in my one self-contained classroom. And I know some teachers still at that school and, and we really fought to get students pushed out into other STEM courses and they're still doing that, which is, which is awesome. So these STEM parties, which sound really cool, by the way, uh, JT, is, is that one of the, you know, ways that you would prescribe to provide students with access is, I mean, it sounds like it was sort of a jam session around the scientific method, so to speak, right? I think Ben has proven that his ability to coin terms is magnifique. Uh, but I, like, I wouldn't have called it the STEM party, but now that I think about some of the things I did with my students, yeah, it was a STEM party, man. And, and that can look a bunch of different ways. So, you know, we didn't do firehouse mouse. Uh, you know, I, I was very leery of burning my school down. Uh, <laughs> particularly since my self-contained class was in a separate building, it would have just been me and them. And I was just like, <laughs> so, so, you know. But um, we did, um, you know, I, I like to incorporate a bunch of different things. And, and you know, ben, ben knows my affinity for music. Uh, and so I wanted to incorporate kind of a performing thing, uh, the arts, which I'm an advocate for, including the arts and science, to make STEM STEAM. Um, but so I we had a contest in our class about performing anything you can perform having to do with science. Whatever your artistic ability, if you want to make a song, write a poem, do a play, whatever. And it had to be connected to uh, some science we, concepts we did. So I, to make a big deal out of it, I invited like the assistant principal and some other teachers. Yeah, you got to play it up. Yeah, well, because yeah. uh, I should have vetted. <laughs> I should have vetted the performances beforehand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but like, so, you know, I thought it was going to be fine because the first kid went up there and he did like a whole, um, I mean, ben, I don't know if you remember when we were talking about this, he did a whole thing on the um three states of matter oh yeah and he he put he like put on a a performance he you know an interpretive dance of the three states of matter which was great it was fantastic nice. however <laughs> my second student also wanted to talk about the three states of matter but he wrote a poem about poop and how poop comes out in three different classes in solids, liquids, and gases. And they're like, it was like a thing. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, but I, 
we are just not going to get away from the toilet paper theme. We had, we had, no. yeah, I'm bringing it back around. <laughs> um, but it, I mean, he did a great job though. Like it was funny and disgusting and hilarious and factual. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. You know, so that was our own kind of version of the STEM party, man. And, um, it, 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 particularly for kids with EBD and even in other disciplines as well, and for the ones who don't get included in science classroom, if we can give them access and in, in just build, like they'll be interested in it because there's so many cool things you can do. Um, we can get them interested. We just have to give them an opportunity to do it. So and let me ask you this because is, you some know, teachers don't feel comfortable doing that. Though. Right, right, right. So let me ask you this. So once, once a student uh, with a disability, uh, in particular, our students with EBD, do have access, right? They get into uh, the science class. And it seems that approaches to sci uh, teaching science in K-12 settings are also changing pretty dramatically. Uh, so in the past, science ed was criticized for focusing primarily on uh, instruction of discrete uh, factual knowledge or the acquisition of discrete factual knowledge. But in your paper, uh, papers that I've read and in other papers uh, on science uh, learning for students with EBD anyway, um, the next generation science standards are frequently cited. Um, and these seem to emphasize that student knowledge of the scientific process or how science is done um, is just as important, if not more important than that factual knowledge. And then deepening their understanding of core science concepts then comes as a subsequent step to teaching them simply about how to do science. Does that, is that a fair characterization of like what science uh, ed is, is, is leaning toward now? Yeah, I think so too, for the most part. I think they, it, it, traditionally, they've always been an interest in kind of the quote unquote, the scientific method. It's just science was usually in schools, it was usually taught from a textbook, which emphasizes kind of that, that part, which you mentioned with the kind of discrete learning of these, you know, facts and, and whatnot. And, and I do think that the field itself of science ed, you know, has gone back to its original roots of, you know, inquiry based instruction and, and kind of science learning that way. Um, the problem with that is, you know, that's not necessarily the best way for, for students with, you know, kind of uh, disabilities and whatever challenges to, to learn either, uh, particularly if it's kind of a open-ended situation. That's, that's really broadly learning. unstructured. I got it, yeah. yeah. Um, learning may not be uh, the, best, the best fit for a, science, uh, uh, a teaching approach um, yeah. if you've got students with EBD in the class. Yeah, and, and there's some people in science ed, even even 20 years ago, who would, um, who, and, and I kind of lean towards this, who look at that inquiry part as a continuum and kind of a spectrum um, from kind of this open ended to a little bit more structured and, you know, different amount of structure along the way. Uh, the more structured it is, the, it can still be inquiry, but it has to be kind of with some boundaries in it and, and some parameters involved uh, works best for students with disabilities of different types. Um, I think what I've heard, it's called a guided inquiry. Yeah. But, guided. Like you mentioned, there is a continuum and there's different stops yeah. along that continuum. 
Yeah, it, well, that, and that's the thing. You can hear different kind of terminology. So guided inquiry, structured inquiry, all of those type of things. But those seem to work the best. Uh, some of the, the seminal work, I would say, for, you know, this intersection of science and, and you know, kind of students with different challenges uh, was done by kind of a Master Puri and Scruggs. And they were like the foundation of kind of looking at science and science teaching and science learning for kids with disabilities. And, and even then they found that the more structured the inquiry, the better. That, that's what, that was the, that was the takeaway then uh, from some of that seminal work was that uh, uh, from Master Perry and Scruggs then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. okay. They, they, they kind of, and the, the unfortunate thing is, you know, is science really wasn't their main area of focus. Uh, so if you look at particularly the research on, since we were talking about CCBD, with students with EBD, emotional behavior disorders, um, that is a paper by Therian and myself and some other colleagues that looked at, that did a review of research for EBD and science. And we looked over huh, 30, 30 years and came up with like 11 articles. Oh, wow. Like 11 research articles in like 30 years. Um, so you know, science itself, again, when we talk about STEM, most of the time we're talking about math. Uh, I think science it's, itself as its own construct is getting more attention, but STEM is like the sexy word. So people say STEM and they can mean like literally anything. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a bit of a misnomer. I, like I appreciate the attention on STEM, but uh, it's not exactly attention on science. <laughs> yeah, rarely do we see like the interconnectedness of science, technology, engineering, and math in like one lesson, right? It's right. Just like, hey, we're going to talk about science today and more science tomorrow or and then some math and we're going to call it STEM. Yeah. So there's, a, there's an analogy I like to use, um, you know, when we're talking about kind of these interventions or research for kids with disabilities, like reading research is like cheddar cheese. It is solid. It's there. Uh, is it ain't going nowhere. Uh, math research is like Swiss cheese. It's there, but there's holes in it. Ah. And science research, there is no cheese. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, is, it doesn't exist. It's not a thing. Uh, so, but we're, we're getting there. I guess my, maybe now we're cheese whiz. So all yeah, cheese. With, at, least, but at least you're cheese in a can now. Yeah, <laughs> we're kind of cheese. So we're, slowly but surely, man, let's get there. <laughs> So uh, we were talking about how like the older way of teaching uh, science was via a textbook and some of the problems that that could present to students with EBD, but you know, all students with disabilities. But what are some other characteristics of students with EBD that we should be considering when we are teaching students science? Well, clearly the, the behavioral part, right? The behavioral engagement kind of on task. That type of so, you know, it becomes how do we how do we keep students' attention? How do we keep them engaged? How do we um, kind of incorporate maybe some classroom management? And then some of the other problems that come along with um, students with EBD are the, the academic parts, the, the parts that they have challenges with, challenges with, with the reading and writing and math. Um, but again, if we, if we do a good job of garnering their interest, so like, you know, you talked about who doesn't want to see about a 
like how how can I play with fire? Like that's that's entertaining just in conversation. Uh, so now you get to you you were able to incorporate these other things in this kind of activity, and it wasn't just like a one day activity. This was like a multiple. This was a project, mm -hmm. you know. So that that sustains attention. Um, we did the the thing with the 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 theatrical performances that was not like a thing we just did in one day it was over time um so how how do we best incorporate these things and and i think it's is possible i i've never understood uh why we in in special education tend to say okay well i have a student who needs to do um, work on reading skills and we do reading probes well why can't they read science text to work on those reading probes mm -hmm. um that's you know the two birds with one stone right uh, actually they're learning some science or doing you know at least getting some science information as well as practicing their reading skills or you know so it's it's kind of how do we best incorporate these things together because they should be and can be you know i want my students to practice their social skills I mean, we're socially distant now, but when we weren't, we wanted them to practice social skills. Well, science groups and science collaborative projects are a really good way to do that. So is is thinking creatively, but not is is not reinventing the wheel, but is you know, it's giving a turtle a skateboard. I was like, we should be able to do this. JT, that brings me to uh, the next point that I wanted to mention, um, which you know, is there's been a lot of uh, research more recently on the incorporation of literacy instructions or literacy strategy instruction within content areas. And I think the reading, uh, um, the, 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 the research on, on literacy and, and uh, uh, developing reading skills um, has really pushed to see that happen within the content area. So in your opinion, how important is it to incorporate literacy instruction within science instruction? And then what do teachers need to do to consider uh, doing that uh, during their planning? What do they need to do or think about uh, to be able to pull that off? That's a, that's a super interesting question because like I'm a, I am an advocate and a fan of kind of incorporating content-based, you know, strategies and content-based readings in our reading strategies and, and vice versa. Um, the funny thing is I'm literally in the process of writing a, a manuscript um, that says, how do we reduce language in, in science? So I, I think it, it goes both ways. I think, like you mentioned before earlier, science does have a heavy vocabulary lift, man. Like there are a lot of terms and, you know, that are associated with science. Um, you know, and as a person who struggled in science myself in, in high school, like I, I still am, am scarred by biology. It is ridiculous. It is like, <laughs> I, it's just a thing. Uh, so, I, and I think it's important that, you know, if we can equip the students as much as possible for some of this vocabulary. However, I also don't think we should let that be the sole focus, but I, but I think this is, this will require what I'm going to say next will require a larger change in our teaching profession and particularly with some of our science teacher colleagues. I like it. Um, Lay on a scientific revolution. 
Okay, okay, here we go. This is this is my my coon moment. This is my, uh, bring it back, man. Uh, um, so again, science does can have a heavy vocabulary uh, kind of burden, uh, and some of that is is necessary to learn certain you know words and and terms is important. But we shouldn't lose sight on the fact that the most important thing is that these students understand these scientific phenomena and concepts broadly. And with that, we can sometimes reduce the language necessity there through other things. I, I chose to use the arts. So, you know, my student who did his interpretive dance didn't say a word. He just danced his way through the, the three states of matter without telling us what they were. And we were pretty clear as when he started doing the earthworm, I figured that was water. Uh, um, but, you know, it, it, it made it clear, but there are other ways to do that. So instead of just having to write a bunch of words to explain science, you could explain the same thing in a chart or a graph or a okay. picture or like something, something to that effect. And, and in science, that is called a thing. It's called multimodal representation. Hmm. Um, and for people who, you know, this is where the, the whole STEM thing could work together in using multimodal representation, just like uh, for math, when you use concrete representational abstract, that strategy, um, right. that is similar to multimodal. So you're using some sort of concrete object, a manipulative, uh, something that's representational, and then you're doing an abstract kind of understanding of the concept, and you get to that sequentially. Same thing with science. Um, I can have him do an interpretive dance, but I would also, in if I want to really see how well he understands the three states of matter, I can say, I want you to write a letter to a third grader, because they were in high school, to mm -hmm. explain three types, the three classes of matter. Uh, and the reason why I chose a third grader is because anytime you're trying to write to someone, another audience, it makes you have to explain it a certain way. Sure. Now that letter would look differently if I told him, I want you to tell the principal about what you learned. Now he'll have to use different language, a more sophisticated language to talk about it as he would in a third grader. But both of those show me that you understand what's happening here. Right. Nice. So, I mean, you can incorporate literacy instruction, but you're kind of telling us that you should incorporate other forms of instruction as well. And yeah. that if you just base it on literacy instruction, the challenges that these students have, our students with EBD sometimes have some fairly significant yeah. language deficits. Uh, that may be a barrier to them understanding the concept broadly. Indubitably. And I can give you a very specific example. Um, I was working um, in Iowa and with some teachers and some kids and one of the kids had a behavior problem or some behavior challenges, I should say. And we were going over her science notebook because that's a thing, science notebooks are important to, to kind of chronicle your science learning. Um, so we're flipping through her notebook. They did an experiment about um, ramps and velocity and all that kind of stuff. This, this student drew really some two really cool pictures of what they did in the experiment. And he didn't write a bunch of words. It was like maybe about three sentences. And everyone else had like a page of written mm -hmm. stuff. But she didn't do that. She wrote three sentences and drew two pictures. 
a low ramp, high ramp, and then explain the pictures and whatever. And I was like, oh, it's nice. nice. It's fly. And then I'm looking at this, and I'm talking to the teachers, and I'm like, oh my God, she just, oh, this is terrible. Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I don't understand what's happening here. She explained the concept, she talked about it. It was accurate. It was very correct. I was like, well, what's the, what's the issue here? Like, yeah. Well, she didn't use all the vocabulary words. Mm. And I, I, I'm not going to say what I said to those teachers <laughs> at that moment because we're professionals. But I was like, you got to be kidding me. Are we, are you, you're just dumping on this kid because she didn't use the vocabulary words, but she understood what was happening and explained what was happening on her own and drew two pictures to explain. Like, what are we talking about? Right, right. So, you know, we just, we have to be realistic and mindful of what do we really want the outcome to be? Do we want them to know the words? Like, they were mad because she didn't use velocity. Or, yeah. but she said, the high ramp made the car go faster, the low ramp made the car go slower, and with no barrier, like, she was like, with no barriers in place, there was no, nothing hindering the speed. Sounds like she had a pretty good idea. Of I was like, to me. that sounds great to me. Like, I'm not even sure if I would have used velocity in that, in, in that situation. But well, they were like, dump, you know, they were dumping on the casino's vocabulary. So we just have to be, remember, kind of why, what are we doing? Why are we here? Right. <laughs> right. We know that inquiry is, this inquiry-based approach to learning is a thing that is out in schools, particularly in gen ed classrooms. So how can those instructors of science support the learning of science with students with EBD using some effective practices that we know like self-monitoring, graphic organizers, and mnemonics? Yeah, that's, that's a really heavy question too, just because it's, there's so many competing things. Like, you know, it's hard for teachers to get away from test and testing because that's such a uh, it's such a tangible outcome and it's something that schools are kind of built on is testing of some sort. Um, even if that's not that kind of the best way to represent science learning and science knowledge. Um, but I think in the, the process of science, like if we're doing projects, if we're actually doing kind of this hands-on science thing, were students able to demonstrate that they were able to conduct a science project to completion? And did they go over, you know, these different steps? The outcomes may be different, but were they able to do the process the same? Like if you're doing your, your firehouse mouse, right? Well, you wanted to see them make a contraption, build this contraption, perform this contraption, and then the outcome being did the thing put the fire out. But that's like the least important part of it. <laughs> like, yeah. were they able to do all this other stuff and have a checkbook and manage their budget and like those are all of the things that, that we can look at. Um, I'm a fan of of, of uh, graphic organizers and particularly concept maps um, because one of the things that that you know I've had the opportunity to do is introduce students to say this science concept we want to get through. We do a concept map at the beginning. They tell a, tell me all these things about this particular big concept, and then once we go through a whole project or experiment, I want to see how their concept map would be different now. Now, now that they've looked at it, that's an evaluation. 
like that's showing learning or growth or lack of growth. So it, is, it can be used as formative or summative, uh, kind of all through that assessment process. There, there are a number of different, depends on what you're looking at. Um, you know, I've been in classrooms where the most important thing I wanted them to do was just be engaged. I don't even care if they got the science right, just, be, just them being engaged from zero engagement to something was what I was monitoring. And, and we're behaviorists, we know how that works. We know how to do that. Um, but for, for science teachers, the science notebooks are very important. Um, I, would, I would emphasize the fact that, what do you want in the science notebook? And how are the different ways we can evaluate what's in the science notebook? Maybe is instead of having them kind of write down what they learned or what they think they learned, they do a video. Maybe they do a podcast. Maybe they like, uh, you know, maybe we help them create animation. Maybe they do a mixtape. I don't care, whatever. There are a whole bunch of different ways that we can kind of evaluate what students have learned. It's just really kind of, I don't even say thinking outside of the box. It's really having all of these things in your toolbox and knowing which tools are going to work best with which kids. Because all, all kids may be able, they might be able to do the same thing, but they can all show that they've learned. Um, another story, I worked with a kid. We, um, he participated in the, in the project. It went, lasted like two weeks. And the last final thing for them to do was to kind of write down, write out what they learned and how, they ch how their ideas changed. And he was struggling and the kid with EBD and he was struggling with writing. It was not, it was not one of his skills. Um, so when it was his turn to get called on and, you know, the principal's there and some other people and, and I wasn't the teacher of the classroom. I was really just there to help. Um, he was like freaking out because he didn't really have much written and he, I couldn't help him because I couldn't read what that was. Uh, his handwriting was terrible. Uh, so <laughs> I said, okay, don't worry about reading this. Just tell everybody what happened. He sat up there for five minutes, just rattling off all of these different things, explaining what he did. Now he had two sentences on his paper, but if I just gave him the opportunity to just tell us instead of trying to read it and write it, he was able to really express all of these things that he, you know, learned over the course of two weeks. So it was, you know, it was just changing the way we take this information. Nice. It was just opening it up and making it quote unquote accessible to more students in more ways. So you mentioned um, uh, having a toolbox and I think that's a good, uh, you know, it's a pretty common, but it's a good um, representation. And at least in, for a frame of reference for me with students with, with EBD, we tend to need a toolbox that has interventions that can do two things at once, right? They need to be able to support students' academics and their behavior at the same time. Mm -hmm. So do, what do you think about the, the effectiveness of practices uh, of these sort of dual interventions for academic and behavioral needs? Or is there anything that can resolve that when, they're, when, when students are learning science? Uh, I think some of, the, some of the ones that we, you know, we've done research on as a field you know, apply, like, um, say we were talking about uh, peer-based strategies. Right. Uh, so peer-assisted learning, class-wide peer tutoring, those things are definitely, can, and can definitely be a part of science and STEM instruction because, you know, we're usually putting people in these groups to do these science projects anyway. So 
you know, we can set that up to where it's more formal as, as like class-wide peer tutoring or, you know, any of the other academic strategies. I think one of the ones that seemed to be very, when we did our, our um, meta-analysis was mnemonics. Mnemonics was a huge, you know, strategy that, that um, had a super high effect size uh, for working um, in science for kids with EBD. Nice. So those and, and can be used to support behavior, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and those are just two examples, but I think looking at the quote unquote evidence-based strategies that kind of work for, you know, EBD in some of the other areas, you know, there are, there usually is like one study somewhere that applied it to science right. or, or something to that effect, or it's more growing. So, um, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, shouldn't shy away from the things that we already know. Why reinvent the wheel? Right. You know, um, yeah. We have these things in our toolbox. Um, sometimes you don't know the pliers will work well with, with, with instead of the wrench. So you right. just have to have to get it. Self-monitoring works. Self -monitoring organizers do. work. Yeah. So if you look at, and not necessarily for EBD, but if you look at for other dis other. Um, individuals other students with other challenges like autism or whatever doing a task analysis is, right. is the intervention that worked in science classrooms uh or they used in science classrooms so is you know in doing a task analysis for self-monitoring purposes like is all of these things we have kind of available to us and sometimes we 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 get in the way of the new shiny thing uh because the new shiny thing is new and shiny. And, but we, we sometimes forget about the stuff that we already kind of have going on that works. When, when STEM's the new shiny thing, taking some of the strategies that we know work for these students, yeah. uh, students with EBD, and just doing them over there in the science class. Doing it, yeah. And yeah. The, the, yeah. the shiny part of STEM is the technology. Like the people kind of get enamored with, with technology and it can be super helpful and super useful but it can also be like more work than it's worth. <laughs> so uh, uh, the, we, just, we just have to be smart. And, and, and really, if we're really doing this for the needs of the student, what are the needs of the student? Well, speaking of, of needs for students and kind of bringing this full circle to the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about jobs and that there are plenty of jobs in the STEM field once students leave even high school. And if we're able to provide students access, keep their interests up in the STEM fields, how, what can we do as teachers and what can teachers in the field do to help sustain that positive science, this positive science learning habits for students with EBD. So when they leave school and they move on to the next stage of their life that they can gain employment and, and make a pretty darn good living in some of these fields. All right, this is where I plant my flag. This is, because this, this is where I feel like I have, to, I have to plant my flag and this is the hill I'm going to die on. Nice. Uh, not just from my experiences, but just, just perspective. We do a terrible job, all of us, collectively, Maybe not you guys. You guys are awesome. But we do a terrible job of helping students understand the practical nature of science. We make it so pie in the sky and so like this thing that is 
us that we should strive for knowledge, but we make it so we put on this pedestal as opposed to the practical understanding of science. And what I mean by that is, and I mean that across the board, not just kids with EDD, but kids with moderate and more severe disabilities. Like, cause they don't get a chance to do science either, which is unfair. Yeah. Because the, pre and, and I'm gonna give you two very specific examples and Ben, you've probably heard these. I had a student who, because they didn't understand practical science, not peptides and membranes and all that kind of stuff. He didn't need to know that. You know what he needed to know? He needed to know that you shouldn't mix bleach and ammonia. Because mm. he almost died. <laughs> That's practical science. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. I had a student with EBD who, again, he didn't know, he didn't need to know the covalent bonding or whatever. He needed to know that you shouldn't stick a fork in a toaster. Like that's that's practical science. How about the fact that you know, like you mentioned about the potential job, working as you know, having your own lawn care business is a science. The science of understanding grass, what makes grass grow, different types of grass, what hinders it from growing, rocks. Grass does not grow from rocks. Like <laughs> some students don't know that. <laughs> like. What is mulch made of? How do you compost? That's science. <laughs> and that is a practical skill that you can use. I used to work construction. Understanding how drywall works is science. Understanding brick laying, roofing is engineering and safety because all on roof, yeah. never fun. <laughs> <laughs> like that's all of that is science, but we don't present it that way. We don't talk about it that way. We don't talk about the industrial arts of understanding uh, how to design. Uh, like if, even if you're a wood maker, you still have to understand design right. and drawings and blueprints. All of that is goes into that STEM field. And we don't talk about it in a practical way, in a regular layman way that helps students feel like they're part of the science and STEM world right. and Make they should science be. practical right right like, and we and we should be like understanding how the algorithms for facebook and instagram and twitter work is science and tech and stem like and understanding what you're you talking about being a a um a knowledgeable consumer that's science that's part of this part of the science so we, but we don't talk about it that way. So that's, this is the heel I'm going to die on is making, or at least advocating for the practical understanding of science and the practical like, teaching of science. Like being able to walk into a grocery store and understand the advancements in toilet paper. Hey, dude, <laughs> that's important. Because now what do, do I spend? Okay. Mm, you, you brought it in. Glad you brought that back. So, so, cause now it's like, all right, a, a roll, uh, a pack of toilet paper is 250, but the ultra pack is 275. Is that a, is that a good deal? Is that a better deal? I does, wish I knew. Does the ply help? It's a great <laughs> deal. You should totally get the ultra pack if it's just 270, it's a quarter. And, <laughs> take that quarter for comfort. <laughs> like, like it's totally worth it. 
But well, we don't we don't talk about science that way. Well, just the, the strong insights on toilet paper from Dr. <laughs> Dante Taylor. This is the best. <laughs> well, JT, you've given us some great insights and info this uh, this time, and we loved having you on. Thanks for joining us today, man. No, man. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I love you guys. You guys are the best, man. You guys kick so much arse. <laughs> nah, yeah, you're the man. Thank you so much. It's been just a blast. Yeah. So, Ben, I suggest we take a little break here to uh, explore an important opportunity happening this summer from our parent organization, the Council for Exceptional Children, uh, regarding a fantastic way in which our listeners can be an active part of the advocacy progress process for students with EBD.